All right, well, if you will um, turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 29. Numbers uh, 29 will be the uh, text, the passage we're looking at uh, this evening. And uh, I think what I want to do tonight is um, we'll read, um, we'll read verse 1 down to verse 16, so through um, the first day of the Feast of Booths, and then there's a a lot of repetition uh, that happens on day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5. Um, I'll explain that a little bit, um, but we'll, we'll then skip down to uh, verse 39 and finish the last two verses of the, uh, of the chapter. So uh, Numbers 29, reading first, verse 1 to uh, 16, says, On the first day of the seventh month you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a day for you to blow the trumpets, and you shall offer a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. One bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish. Also their grain offering, a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths, for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs, with one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you, besides the burnt offering of the new moon, and its grain offering, and the regular burnt offering, and its grain offering, and their drink offering, according to the rule for them, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. On the tenth day... Of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation and afflict yourselves. You shall do no work, but you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma. One bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old. See that they are without blemish. And their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement and the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and their drink offerings. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. And you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thirteen bulls from the herd, two rams, fourteen male lambs a year old. They shall be without blemish, and their grain offering, a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and a tenth for each of the fourteen lambs. Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. 
And again, it goes to the second day of the feast, third, fourth, fifth, so on, down to the eighth. And then picking up in verse 39, these you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feast in addition to your vow offerings and your free will offerings for your burnt offerings and for your grain offerings and for your drink offerings and for your peace offerings. And so Moses told the people of Israel everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, um, tonight we are, of course, uh, continuing our study through Numbers and uh, finishing up this section in chapters 28 and 29. Um, Harrison covered uh, 28 last week, um, where uh, what we find here in these chapters is uh, the Lord commanding Moses to instruct the people about all the different sacrifices that they are to offer and when they're to offer them. Now, um, when, you, when you look through this uh, book, you look through this section, you look through the different discussions that uh, are being raised by uh, different commentators, one of the things that very frequently comes up is why is this here? <laughs> why, was this, why was this put here um, after all that we have just read? Um, we have all of these narratives, for example, about Balaam and the donkey um, and the uh, ways in which he tried to deceive and lead Israel into sin and curse them. Um, you read about uh, the story about the zeal of uh, Phineas as well, and then the census of a new generation. We saw that um, after that is the account about Joshua being raised up to succeed Moses and to lead the people into the promised land. And then we have these two chapters about sacrifices. So what's going on? Right? Why, is this, why is this placed here where it is in the book? And uh, there's a couple of things to say about this that I think are worth saying. And one thing to say is that this is actually pretty normal throughout the book of Numbers. Um, there is a constant cycle of narratives that are then followed by certain laws that are going to be observed by uh, the people of Israel, uh, especially starting around chapter 10, Israel leaves Sinai, and uh, then we read narratives. We read about the people uh, complaining about the food that they have to eat, the manna from heaven, is not good enough. They want meat to eat, and so they complain about that, and then the Lord sends them quail as well as a plague, right? He curses them. Um, and then you read uh, another narrative about the spies going into the land. This is also another narrative that reflects poorly on Israel because the spies go into the land, and uh, they bring back a bad report. Um, they see that it is indeed a, a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, but the people there are, are too, too great, too strong, too mighty. Um, we, need to, we need to just go back to Egypt, right? The Lord is not giving us this land. And so they, they give a bad report to the people of Israel. The people do not want to enter into the land. And eventually, um, Israel goes into battle. They're then defeated. And then in chapter 15, there's laws. Laws about sacrifices. 
We're told that these laws are given in anticipation of entering into the land. We read about that in uh, verses uh, 18 to 19 of chapter 15. So even though there is much rebellion that's taking place, there is sin in the camp, God is going to continue to fulfill His Word and His promises to them, and these laws about sacrifices are in anticipation of those promises being fulfilled. He's going to bring them into the land, and when they arrive, they will need to present contributions to the Lord and thankfulness for His blessings. And so that's why those laws are given. Uh, Then we also find in that same context that there are laws about unintentional sins and how to atone for them, and then laws about tassels that are on their garments. And then after this law section, we then come into more narratives. You have the story, for example, of Korah and his rebellion. You have the story about Aaron's priesthood being challenged. And then this is followed by more laws. Another section about the duties of the Levites and laws about purification. All this to say, the way that numbers is structured is that you have narratives that are then followed by laws, narratives, laws, narratives, laws, and so on and so forth. And something similar is going on here. We've just gone through the narratives about Balaam and Moab and the Midianites. And then we learn that the new generation has now come of age. And before they enter into the promised land, in chapter 31 of Numbers, they're going to execute God's vengeance on the Midianites for what they did in enticing the people of Israel to sin against the Lord. And when they carry out this judgment against Midian, they're going to take a lot of spoil. The, The spoils of war is going to be great. Tens of thousands of sheep and cattle and donkeys will now belong to them from this one conquest. And this will be essentially most everything they need to carry out the demands of the sacrificial system. And so these chapters here that we're looking at and have been looking at are anticipating the conquest of the land which will bring about prosperity and blessing to Israel and will provide abundantly for them to carry out the religious rites that the Lord has commanded already in His law and is explaining further here. Another thing that is worth noting is that these chapters establish a kind of holy calendar for Israel. You'll remember that um, even as we've been going through the book of Numbers, we've seen that every single aspect of Israelite society had something to do with reminding the people of Israel about who they were as God's people. It had something to do with reminding them about the covenant that they were in 
with God and the kinds of things that He's done for them to save them and to show them His steadfast love. The clothing they wore, for example. Uh, You can think about the tassels that were supposed to be on their garments that we saw a while ago. This This was there to remind them to keep God's commandments. It was a feature of their regular clothing that was to be a reminder that they are to walk in obedience to the Lord. Uh, We saw as well that the arrangement of their camp taught them that God was in their midst because the sanctuary, the the tabernacle, was in the center of the camp. Obviously, something like the Passover feast reminded them of the Exodus and so on and so forth. You could point to all of those different different examples of these, these different aspects of Israel's life in the wilderness and eventually in the land that points them to the Lord. And in the same way, the whole calendar of Israel was designed to provide them with constant reminders about who God was for them. And this constant reminder was going to be there every single day. Every single week, every single month, as well as at other special occasions throughout the year. Now, um, last week we looked at chapter 28. And you'll notice that the sacrifices that are commanded to be performed in this chapter, they all build on top of each other. And and it's the same throughout uh, chapter 29 as well. So, the first thing that we see addressed in chapter 28 is the daily sacrifice. Every single day at the tabernacle of the Lord, a sacrifice was to be offered in the morning and in the evening. Leah was mentioning, you know, how after, after you have a nap in the afternoon, right, it kind of be a little bit of a difficult motivation to get up and, you know, come back to church in the evening, right? But I reminded her, right, they did morning and evening sacrifices, right? So we, we do the same thing now, right? Well, that, that was the case for, for the tabernacle. There was a sacrifice that was in the morning as well as in the evening. And this was a regular offering of two lambs every day along with the prescribed grain offering that went with it. And these offerings of a lamb without blemish were a constant daily reminder to Israel of their need for blood to be spilled on their behalf so that they could continue to have communion with God And it was a reminder of God's provision in giving them that very thing they needed to keep that communion with Him. Now, everything that follows builds on this. It builds on this daily sacrifice. It compounds. Which means that when sacrifices were offered, on other occasions, it was in addition to these regular daily offerings. So, on the Sabbath, for example, 
which was a weekly celebration. In addition to the daily offering of two lambs, the priests were to offer two more lambs. So that on the Sabbath, there was a total of four lambs that were offered on that day. After the weekly offering came, of course, the monthly offerings. And here, the priests were to sacrifice seven lambs, one ram, two bulls, and a goat for a sin offering on the first day of the month, on the new moon. And this also would have been in addition to the daily offerings, so that on the first day of the month, you have nine lambs that are being offered in total. So you can see how this works, right? You work through this calendar and everything sort of builds on top of of each other. There are regular offerings that never stop, which are daily, weekly, and monthly. And then on special occasions, which are your various feasts throughout the year, there are sacrifices that were offered in addition to these regular offerings. And this is what we see with the Passover and the Feast of Weeks, which is at the end of chapter 28, as well as with the feast and the special occasions that are in chapter 29. That is the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. Now, tonight, I want to just briefly outline the sacrifices that are being offered on these occasions, but but then I want to talk a little bit about their uh, significance, particularly for us as we think about this in a wider, more, more broader biblical theological perspective. Um, now, you will notice that all three of these occasions in chapter 29, all three of them take place on the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. The first month is when the Passover takes place, back in chapter 28. That's the month of Abib, or the month of Nisan, roughly around our March and April uh, period. The seventh month is the month of Tishri, and this corresponds to our September to October time, and this was, without a doubt, their busiest month of the year. This is when sort of like everything is uh, coming together. In addition to the daily, weekly, and monthly offerings, there were offerings for three different special occasions, one of which, the Feast of Booths, lasted for eight days. So, the Feast of Trumpets, in chapter 29, begins the seventh month. And it's a day that signals the beginning of the most important month for Israel where at the center of this month is the Day of Atonement, where Israel's sins are atoned for corporately as a people. And during this feast, sacrifices unique to the Feast of Trumpets are offered in addition to those daily sacrifices, as well as the first of the month sacrifices, right? So you've got both that daily and that that monthly sacrifice that is being offered here uh, as well. Now what this, when you add all this up, what this amounts to is a total of three bulls, two rams, 
and 16 lambs and one goat being offered on this day. This then leads to the Day of Atonement, which falls on the 10th day of this seventh month. And the Day of Atonement is not a feast. It is not a time of eating and drinking and being merry. It is a time that the people are called to afflict themselves, to have a fast. And they're to do so because the Day of Atonement is a day when they are to, in a very sober manner, remember and reflect on their sins, all while sacrifices are being offered to atone for them, most especially by the high priest. But once the Day of Atonement then ends and Israel's sins are atoned for, this then leads into more than a week, eight days of celebration and feasting. Right? So you've got this, this period of almost mourning, right? fasting over sin, which then leads into this longer celebration um, and feasting. And this is when the Feast of Booth happens towards the end of the seventh month. And Deuteronomy 16 says that during this particular feast, Israel is to rejoice together along with their sons and their daughters and their servants and the sojourners and mothers and fathers. Everyone who is within their towns is to celebrate while they are also called to essentially reenact their days in the wilderness. They are to dwell in booths, in tents, all throughout this week. They are to remember, while they're doing this, how their fathers dwelled in booths in the wilderness when the Lord led them through it, when He sustained them, when He was faithful to them. But this feast also celebrated the fact that they were now in the promised land. And the Lord, because of that, was blessing them. Deuteronomy 16 speaks also of how this feast, which required the most offerings of any of the feasts, how this feast was to be kept, quote, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. So the feast was to look backwards to what God had done for them in the wilderness, caring for them, providing for them, as well as to the present and to the future regarding how the Lord would bless their land still and make their livestock and their fruit increase abundantly. And so for the priests, this of course became the busiest time of the year for them, right? This is when they're looking around, they're going, I need a raise this month, right? <laughs> for seven days, the priests would have offered a total of 16 lambs, two rams, and one goat, and in a descending order, they would have offered 13 to 7 bulls, right? So on Day one of the feast, 
they're offering 13 bulls. Then on day two, it's 12. Day three, 11. Then it goes down to 10, 9, 8, 7. And on the eighth and final day, they offer one bull. So this is, what's a, this is what is here in this chapter being outlined and required of them. Right? This is setting, this is establishing their calendar for when they defeat the Midianites and then eventually enter into the promised land. But I want to say a few words about the, um, both the corruption of these feasts that would subsequently occur within the land of Israel, as well as a word about their uh, fulfillment. And we'll end with, with that this evening. Now, um, as I mentioned last week, uh, as well as uh, tonight, these occasions were not just meaningless rituals that were to be performed out of nothing more than religious duty. They meant something. They were to teach something to the people of Israel, to the fathers, to their children, and to all subsequent generations. In much the same way that the Lord's Supper that we practice weekly, a kind of weekly offering, means something and is not to be carried out just as some mere religious duty but truly as an opportunity to be reminded of the gospel in a very visual way. The special convocations of Israel were supposed to be a kind of schoolmaster that teaches them about the Lord, teaches them about their gospel, about what He had done for them at the Exodus, and the good news he was their God and they were his people. But what Israel turned all of these convocations into was nothing more than a religious ritual on par with other religious rituals that other pagans would perform to all of their various gods. The heart behind the feasts and the convocations was rejected, and Israel never learned from them. Their history is one of constant rebellion. And rather than repenting of their sins and keeping the Lord's commands and ceremonies from a repentant, believing heart, all they did was just attach the ceremonies to their corrupt hearts, and to their corrupt lives. All of the ceremonies were just appendixes to their corrupt lives. And this is one of the things that we see Judah especially being indicted for by the Lord later in Israel's and in Judah's history in the book of Isaiah. In the opening chapter, for example, of Isaiah, the Lord refers to all of these feasts. Everything that we just saw in chapter 28 and 29. And He says that He despises them. The very feasts that He ordained for Israel to keep. 
He's telling them in Isaiah 1, I hate them. And he's saying this because of what his covenant people are doing with them. In verses 12 to 16 of Isaiah chapter 1, we read this. God is speaking through Isaiah to the people of Judah, and he says, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. I mean, he's, he's calling the, the regular burnt offerings, all of the different sacrifices that they're commanded to do, they're vain. They're not burnt offerings. They're not a pleasing aroma to the Lord. These are vain offerings you are bringing. He says, incense is an abomination to me. New moon, your, your monthly times, your, your Sabbath, and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Right? These things don't go together. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, right? when they're offering up their prayers to the Lord during these appointed feasts, He says, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And then, what are they supposed to do as he, as he indicts them for this corruption of the feast that He had ordained for their good? What are they supposed to do? He goes on and He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before My eyes. God's covenant people at this time thought that the mere observance of ceremonies was one of the things that made them His people. As long as they're born in the line of Abraham, as long as they're practicing the ceremonies that the law tells them to do, this means that they're right with God. God's pleased with them and the temple will remain forever. But the problem is that they still were living in sin. They didn't repent. They did not use the Day of Atonement as a season to afflict themselves and to cry out to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. Rather, they presumed on His grace and they used His law as a means to justify themselves. As long as they performed the rituals, they were good. They're being obedient to His Word. But the Lord tells them, you must repent. The Sabbaths and the new moons and the festivals, all the things that I did command you to do to teach you 
and to give you an opportunity to rejoice in Me from the heart, all of it means nothing if you're living in sin. And of course, it's still the same thing today. This is an important lesson for us to learn from Israel's bad example. The Lord's Word and His commands are good. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that is good. The gathering together for worship is good. It's commanded. But you can do a lot of things that are biblical because the Lord commands them to be done and you cannot know the Lord. I mean, you can... <laughs> I always remember Donald Trump. <laughs> you can speak of your cracker right, and your little juice and that means absolutely nothing if you don't know the Lord. And so we need to be sure that our outward obedience, that it again is good, that is for our good, that is commanded for us to walk in, we need to be sure that it isn't just a mere dutiful work to perform while our hearts are far from God. We need to be sure that we know Him and we truly love Him. You know, the, 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 the proper carrying out of these feasts. Again, you think something like the Feast of Booths where they're commanded to rejoice, right? This, this is an opportunity for, for God's people out of a pure heart that truly loves Him to have an opportunity together with all of these tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of other covenant people to worship the Lord together and to remember His goodness to them. It is good, but it can be corrupted. And they certainly did corrupt it. And we can do the same thing as well if our hearts are hardened. But also, I want to say a brief word, and we'll close with this, about fulfillment uh, here. Um, the Apostle Paul, of course, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, um, excuse me, he refers to these very feasts, the, the things that are being described in chapters 28 to 29, and he calls them a shadow. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. All of the things that are here described. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These festivals, this daily, weekly, monthly ritual, they all in some way point to Christ and are ultimately fulfilled in Him. Some of these are more obvious than others. Right? You think of, for example, the offering of lambs 
as a daily sacrifice. John the Baptist proclaims Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Peter likewise says that we have been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. These things reference back, allude to those lambs that would have been offered in daily offerings. Or you you think of the, the Day of Atonement. And the high priest offering a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And it's not hard to recognize the fulfillment in Jesus who is our great high priest who offers Himself as a sacrifice once for all, thereby granting us access to God through the true Holy of Holies. Some of these fulfillments are more obvious But I want to revisit uh, what we thought about this morning, actually, in Sunday school from John chapter 7. When on the last day of the Feast of Booths, which is described in, in Numbers 29, on the last day of this feast, Jesus stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Which was said about the giving of the Spirit, as John explains. Now, um, it's clear all throughout John's Gospel that John is very intentionally showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And He shows us this because Jesus showed this. Right? When you can think of at the end of John's Gospel and Jesus is on the cross and He's dying there and He's quoting all of those different passages from the Exodus and Psalms about uh, Jesus and, and, and being, being like the Passover Lamb, right? who's not one of His bones will be broken as we've even seen recently from Psalm 34. All all throughout John's Gospel, that's one of the things he's doing as he's writing this narrative, this Gospel about Christ. Every single story is showing us some aspect about Christ and how He fulfills the Old Testament. And one of those places where He clearly demonstrated Himself to be the fulfillment of Scripture was when He fed the 5,000 who had nothing to eat. Which evokes for us the memory of how God fed His people in the wilderness when they had nothing to eat. And following this miracle, Jesus, of course, then proclaimed Himself in John chapter 6 to be the true bread which comes down from heaven. God, in the Old Testament, had fed His people manna from heaven in order to sustain them in the wilderness. But now, Jesus made the point that God was feeding them with something better. John 6, verse 33, the bread of God, He said, is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus, in other words, is the true manna 
from heaven. He is the bread that when someone eats of it, they will never hunger again. And I think something similar to this is actually what's going on in John chapter 7. Remember that John 7 takes place during the Feast of Booths. And what was one of the primary things that the Feast of Booths was about? It was about God caring for and providing for and sustaining His people in the wilderness. It was a reenactment of those wilderness days. And what were some of the ways that God cared for His people then? Well, of course, one of them is what we just saw. He fed them with bread from heaven, with the manna from heaven. But another way that He provided for them in the wilderness was in what they drank. How did they drink water in the wilderness? You'll remember what happened with them there. It was by a miracle. In Exodus 17, we read about how the Lord stood before Moses on the rock at Horeb and He instructed Moses to strike the rock and water would come out of it and give the people something to drink, sustaining them, quenching their thirst while they're in the wilderness. Now, I think this is what Jesus is actually referencing in John 7 during the Feast of Booths. The Jews are together to remember the Lord's provisions for them in the wilderness during the days of the Exodus, and it's during that time, at the very end of that feast, that Jesus says, if if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. In the same way that He had just said to them not long before, I am the true bread which comes down from heaven, Here He is saying, I am the true water that comes from the rock. Indeed, even the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that Christ was the rock that followed the people in the wilderness and from whom or which they drank. The point is that Christ is the One who fills up in Himself all of the meaning of Israel's history and feasts and rituals. He is what they were all pointing to. He is the greater temple. He is the true food. And He is the true drink. And when we drink from Him, as we saw this morning, He becomes for us a fountain of life by the Spirit. The Spirit He gives to us and that wells up within us into or to eternal life. And therefore, through Him, by drinking from Him, by eating of His flesh, we will live forever. The whole of Israel's 
history is fulfilled in him. So as Christians, right, when we're looking at these Old Testament stories, that's one of the things that, that we want to see. It's one of the things that the New Testament helps us to see again and again and again. How the history of Israel reaches its climax and fulfillment in Christ. I'm going to end there, um, and we'll close with uh, a word of prayer, okay? Well, Father, again, we are uh, grateful for Christ, who is our rock, who is our redemption, who is our true drink and our true food. And we thank you, Lord, that in him we have an endless supply of nourishment. In him we have been united to God and made pillars in your house. And so, Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have poured out upon us. And we do pray that you would help us to um, not be obedient to your word simply out of a mere sense of duty, while in the heart we rebel and in most of our lives we reject your word. May it not be the case that whatever rituals that you have given to us to perform would just be matters of duty, but that we would always be pointed to Christ by all of them and would rejoice together in them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's uh, stay.